This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Kevin Sussums discusses his new book, I Left It on the Mountain. Then, PW Senior Spirituality and Religion Editor, Lynn Garrett, talks about the expanding field of religion and spirituality publishing. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, which is powered by Nielsen BookScan. What do we have on nonfiction? Well, our highest debut is number 20. This is a book by Haley Pomroy called The Burn, Why Your Scale is Stuck and What to Eat About It. She's the bestselling author of The uh, Fast Metabolism Diet. And here she talks about how how to break that, how to go on beyond the plateau, to get off that plateau, I should say, and lose up to three, five, and ten pounds in as many days. So that's at number 20. Uh, we also have another uh, dieting book, and this is by uh, Chef Rocco Despirito. Uh, he's been coming out with a lot of uh, diet books, diet um, and, and, and diet cookbooks as well. Uh, this is called Cook Your Butt Off. Lose up to a pound a day with fat-burning foods and gluten-free recipes. Um, and he is doing exactly that. And this is something he's been continuing on in his last uh, few books. Um, and this is uh, how to you know stay ahead of your calorie intake by cooking healthy and uh, what he says, delicious uh, dishes uh, with no sugar, no gluten, and all lactose-free. So, uh, and that's his diet plan, number 23. So, Going down a little bit further at uh, number 29, we've been seeing uh, quite a few more memoirs. Uh, This is by Helen MacDonald, H is for Hawk. We say that this is an elegant synthesis of memoir and literary sleuthing, and she's an English academic, and uh, she got a three-year fellowship to the University of Cambridge. She's a trained falconer, and here she rediscovers her favorite, the favorite book of her childhood, T.H. White's The Goshawk, which was published in 1951. And she also published a book called The, the Once in the Future King. But here she uh, she uses this the training of this young Goshawk to help her through the grief uh, of, of her uh, the death of her father. We say that MacDonald describes in beautiful, thoughtful prose how she comes to terms with death in a new and startling way as a result of her experiences with the uh, Goshawk. So we say all th- she plunges into the archaic terminology of falconry and um, you know, she, she, she examines the, uh, the uh, gendered biases of this. She finds comfort in the invisibility of being the trainer. So this is something, this is a seemingly quiet book that has made its way up, up the list. And another memoir, number 35, um, Lindsay Adario, It's What I Do, A Photographer's Life and Love uh, and War. Uh, she's a photojournalist, a documentary photographer. Uh, she also won the MacArthur Grant. And she talks about traveling the world over to Pakistan, India, Sudan, Afghanistan, and elsewhere, including being you know, where she was kidnapped. Uh, for three weeks into the, uh, into the Libyan uprising of 2011. And here she talks about what it's like and her passion of being a photographer. Dario's memoir, Brilliant Succeeds, we say, not only as a personal and professional narrative, but also as an illuminating homage to photojournalism's role in documenting the suffering and injustice. So that's at number 35. And number 36, we have a kind of a uh, business uh, help book by the PayPal co-founder, Peter Thiel. Uh, I think that's how to pronounce his name. Zero to one, notes on startups or how to build the future. Um, And so that's at number 36. Exactly that, how to build the future with startups. And then we have two investigative books at number 40 and 44. Four. Both starred reviews. Uh, one is by Jill Levy, uh, Ghetto Side, A True Story of Murder in America. And this is about the uh, 2007 murder of uh, an 18-year-old young man, Bryant Tennell, uh, in South uh, Los Angeles. And here she talks about uh, 
why his death never brought press attention or any kind of vigorous police action. Um, we say, like most ghetto side cases, which he calls you know, murders in the ghetto, that the Tunnell case was eminently solvable, merely awaiting a determined investigator to whom the lives of black men were valuable. Their murder is something to be answered for. Um, we say that readers may come for Levy's detective story, but they will stay for her lucid social critique. Um, and this is obviously something our reviewers really liked. And uh, an, an interesting note about book about that book, it, we had actually talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Right. I was thinking, oh, that sounds familiar. It seems to have dropped off the list and then come back. And come back. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah. We should look at that a little bit more, see what books have done that, because we have talked about books as it comes on. Mm-hmm. Uh, number 44, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs by uh, Johan Hari. Uh, in his first book, a uh, journalist takes readers on an historical tour of the devastation wrought by the global war on drugs, uh, beginning at the turn of the 20th century with Harry Anslinger and the first commissioner of the Federal Bureau, who is the first commissioner of the uh, Federal Bureau of Narcotics, and Arnold Rothstein, the Prohibition era kingpin of New York. He ends his journey in Uruguay, Portugal, and Switzerland, where successful movements to legalize and decriminalize drugs offers hope for the future. He believes that the uh, the best strategy to legalize drugs stage by stage and to use the money we currently spend on punishing addicts, I'm quoting him right now, to fund compassionate care instead. And uh, and that's at number 44. So uh, there's not so much excitement happening on uh, the fiction list. We do have a few new books uh, a little bit lower down, but the, the top five are... Pretty much, or I should say the top six are the same top six, mm-hmm. just in a slightly different order. Um, at number seven, we have The Whites. Uh, this is written by Richard Price, writing as Harry Brandt, but uh, you know, Price is Price, and he's a phenomenal storyteller under any name. Uh, we call this a gripping, gritty Greek tragedy of cops, killers, and the sometimes blurry line between them. Uh, mm. B.W. gave this a starred review, uh, said it's a, a sprawling tale, and that the author skillfully manipulates multiple storylines for peak suspense at his, uh, as his arresting characters careen toward a devastating final reckoning. Oh, great. So uh, that sounds uh, like a very, very powerful book. And that's at number seven. Someone just handed me that book just the other day to read. Uh, she sat down, read it within hours, uh, absolutely loved it. And I've read uh, two, three of his previous books. I'm looking forward to this one as well. I have no idea why he decided to change his uh, his name for this one. But, um, you know, right. ho- hopefully it'll be a, a useful decision. Often that has to do with, uh, you know, the, the databases that booksellers look at to say, should we, should we stock this book or, you know, publishers deciding whether to take a chance on something. So, uh, but his name is there on the cover, Richard Price writing as (laughs) Harry Brandt. So it seems very clear that it's, it's just about the databases and, uh, for the human beings out there, we all know who he is. Sure. Uh, and number nine, we have the accidental empress by Alison Pataki. Uh, this is her follow up on her critically acclaimed debut novel, the traitor's wife. Uh, this is historical fiction about real people in uh, the 1850s, um, specifically the uh, 15-year-old Duchess of Bavaria, uh, who is, whose older sister is betrothed to young Emperor Franz Joseph of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, she and her sister go to court, and she falls in love with the emperor and he with her. So he breaks his engagement to her sister marries her instead um and you know imagine being a teenage girl on an imperial throne uh, but she was apparently quite something and uh it's a, a wonderful dramatic love story wrapped up in international politics so that's at uh, number nine at 11 on the hardcover fiction list as dreaming spies a novel of suspense featuring mary russell and sherlock holmes uh, this is by Laurie R. King. Um, Mary Russell and her husband, in this version of stories, uh, Sherlock Holmes, uh, have been uh, in a number of other novels for King. I think this is her 14th mm-hmm. in the series. And, uh, of course, they are investigations. 
yeah. of the uh, typical sort. But um, because they've been together for so long, Russell and Holmes are now well into the 1920s. You know, it's really not the Victorian era anymore. We're right. getting into more modern times. And so it's interesting to see how uh, that, that uh, Holmesian detective story gets updated for the Roaring Twenties. Uh, and our review says that while some may not like the idea of a married Holmes uh, and I must personally add, some may not like the idea of him being married to anyone other than Watson. Uh, many will find the character deepened by his partnership with the spirited and clever Russell. And this book gives every indication that the series still has a long life ahead of it. Great. A little bit further down the list, um, just two books I wanted to note at number 26 is The Swimmer mm-hmm. uh, by Joaquim Sander. And uh, this is an entertaining first novel. We say it owes more to Forsyth and Ludlum than to uh, you know, other Scandinavian authors like Larson. Oh, right. uh, and uh, it starts with an unnamed narrator who's a retired spy living in Virginia, um, sort of writing a mental letter to his late wife uh, telling her a t- convoluted tale that begins with her death and continues across the world over the next 33 years. Uh, our review says that given Zander's literate descriptive style, it's very easy to see why this thriller has been a bestseller in Europe, uh, but American readers may find it takes a little too much time to get to the inevitable conclusion. And uh, finally, at number 28 is Half the World, by Joe Abercrombie. Uh, this is the sequel to Half a King's uh, second installment in an epic fantasy series. Mm-hmm. Um, Abercrombie is is, uh, is known as uh, one of the foremost voices in what's called grimdark epic fantasy, the sort mm-hmm. of thing where it's just all battlefields and blood. Uh, his Twitter handle is actually Lord Grimdark. He, <laughs> he embraces it. Um, but this is a, a slightly... I don't know even that I'd call it more lighthearted, but it's, it's dialed down just a little bit for more appeal to younger readers. Oh, wow. Um, so it's, it's, it's comfortably in that space between adult and mm-hmm. YA, and uh, it shifts the focus from the prince, who uh, was the hero of the first story, to uh, a young woman, a commoner, uh, who is stubbornly determined to become a fighter and follow in the footsteps of her father, who was a great warrior. Great. Um, and so this is uh, an interesting coming-of-age story uh, in a fantasy world full of, uh, of course, blood, but maybe not too much of it, uh, and lots of politics as well. Our review says Abercrombie has a knack for building characters with pathos and wit, and both plot and setting are believable, and readers will easily immerse themselves in the world. So there's Great. one more book to come in the trilogy, and uh, I'm, I'm guessing we'll see that one on the bestseller list, too. Oh, I'm sure. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Kevin Sussums. Tell us about the epiphanies that come when you least expect them. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Brandon Sanderson, author of the Reckoner series, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Kevin Sessoms right here in the PW offices. His new memoir is I Left It on the Mountain. Kevin, I'm so glad you could join us. Thanks for asking me. So uh, this is this is your second memoir, and um, where does the title of the book come from? I was asked to climb Mount Kilimanjaro uh, by some friends a few years ago, and I thought, I'd, at that point, I'd recently been diagnosed with HIV, and I had admitted uh, almost uh, instantly to friends and family that I was HIV positive. I didn't keep it a secret. Uh, I didn't want to be that person who was ashamed of it. And I thought, if I climbed the mountain, maybe I could do the one thing that I had not been able to do, which was to forgive myself for converting to HIV late in life. I was in my 40s by the time it happened. Um, And I'd lived through the plague years um, and had not converted. And um, I had a boyfriend, Peter Daly, who was one of the founders of ACT UP, who was HIV positive and for three years and never converted. Uh, and uh, so it was all tied into drug use. Um, and I just couldn't forgive. I just couldn't forgive myself. So I thought if I'd climb the mountain and sort of break myself down physically, maybe there could be some epiphany on that mountain. 
that I could find the way to forgiveness. And I don't know, should I tell you exactly what I left on the mountain or should I leave it up to you, the readers? You can make find? people read the book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can well, tell it and I just, I won't tell it as beautifully as it's written. But uh, Let's hear a little story about that. Yeah. yeah. About, about, about the, the mountain. Mount, about the mountain, yeah. Well, I go to try to seek forgiveness, and by the time I make the penultimate summit, there's a place where you sort of look out, you're above the cloud line, and you see the glacier still, and um, there's this amazing vista, and I still hadn't forgiven myself. I hadn't had that spiritual epiphany, so I turn to uh, one of my guides and tell him why I'm climbing the mountain and my HIV status, and... Uh, let him know that I'm trying to forgive myself and I just can't so let's just make the damn summit and so we turn around and we walk and I make the summit and then we walk down and then the next day as we're walking to the base camp he calls me up to the front of the group that I'm with and points to a plant he, he was from the Chaka tribe um, which is the mountain tribe and he was very proud that he knew lots he knew all the scientific names of the plants on the mountain and all the animals and um, he pointed to a plant and told me the scientific name of it and then he said but we here on the mountain call it the forgiveness plant Hmm. and I think you should know about this plant it's been here around you the whole time and what we do with this plant is when we have a fight with a neighbor or we have a misunderstanding with a family member and um we are really mad at them. We come take a cutting from this plant and we give it to them. And that way they know that they are forgiven. And you should know about this. Mm. It's been around you the whole time. So I thought, well, I think I should cut this and give it to myself. Maybe this is what I've been looking for. So I bend down to cut it and... I hear my father's voice. My, my my father died when I was seven. My mother died when I was eight. Yeah. Um, and I hear my father go, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I hear my mother say, there's nothing to forgive. And I stand up. I don't cut the plant. And that's what I left on the mountain. But if you want to know the the more beautiful side I mean I tell it more beautifully than that mm. in the book it takes me 25 pages in that <laughs> chapter but, but that's what I leave on the mountain and yet the rest of the book I'm still trying to find that forgiveness I mean it's yeah. a book it's a journey toward forgiveness I think more more than anything yeah. uh, it's, I mean that's definitely uh, moving and, and big and you've also you also talk about taking a walk on the El Camino mm-hmm. is that also part of this honestly I the impulse to walk the Camino was I thought it would make a really good chapter <laughs> okay alright he's fucking like a writer <laughs> I mean really that that yeah. that was uh, the main reason I thought that would make I mean I knew the, the the German guy who'd written I forgot his name but he was he's a German like David Letterman type mm-hmm. who wrote sort of a glib funny book about walking the Camino that was huge success right. huge yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I read about it in the New York Times and when I read about it I thought oh my book could use that and and like climbing Mount Kilimanjaro every few years I put some physical thing in my life to um prove I'm still alive, I guess, you know? mm-hmm. especially as an HIV positive person. I think that I'm, I'm healthy. And it was an extraordinary experience, the Camino. Um, I'm an austere Protestant. That's mm-hmm. the way I was raised, and it's a very Catholic path. Um, but And there were some days on it that were just hellish. I mean, when you turned into... Galicia, I think is the term. Uh, that part of Spain, it, it's like you took the wrong turn and you're in Ireland suddenly. Mm. Uh, it's just rainy and cold and muddy, and I hate walking in the rain. <laughs> there was one day I walked in the rain for 12 hours. I thought this is the worst day of my life. Uh. But I, as I look back on it, I tell people now that if I had to live life like Groundhog Day, if I had to choose how to live my life every day over and over and over and over again, I would choose to walk the Camino over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. I mean, I truly, sincerely 
believe that. Uh, I, it was an extraordinary experience. All you did was walk. That's all you had to do. And just, it's, it was this feeling of complete stillness as you're com- constantly moving forward. That's all I, that's the only way I can de- describe it. And the epiphany, to use that word again, that I had on the Camino, which I did not think I was going to have, because uh, it's, you know, a deeply Christian Catholic path. By the end of the Camino, I ceased to be a Christian. It was not what I was expecting. Mm. Um, And to say I'm not a Christian is harder to say than I'm gay, I'm HIV positive, I'm an addict. Those things come easily to me as an admission if those are things that one has to admit. Um, For me to say I am no longer a Christian, even saying it now, it sort of sticks in my throat. Mm -hmm. Because of the way I was raised culturally, more more than anything. Uh, I'm not an atheist Mm -hmm. at all. I became atheist on the Camino. So Mm -hmm. that that space between the A and the T, Mm -hmm. that mysterious space is where I sort of live now. And... um, so I, I, it, it made me a more deeply spiritual person. It made me less a dogmatic religious one. Um, and I thank God for that. So it sounds like um, when you went looking for this epiphany, you didn't necessarily find it. And when you weren't looking for an epiphany, you found one, though right. it wasn't one you expected. Mm-hmm. Is, is that what it's been like, sort of in this memoir space where you have the journalist instinct and the writer instinct, but you're also living your life? <sighs> um, I think I live my life a lot now trying to be still. Hmm. I'm trying to be still. Even now in this interview, I'm trying to be still. Um, and I think the more still you are, the more an epiphany can find you. I think God has to find you. I think an epiphany has to find you. And the secret is for you to be still and let it find you. You can't go searching. This is a book about a journey and searching, but what I found at the end of it is the search has to come to you. That uh, God is searching for you. You're not searching for God. This, is, this sounds like a, just an incredibly vivid realization, the sort of thing that can yeah. just change your whole life, change well, the way you do everything. It, I mean, it made me sober. Mm. Uh, that's a big deal. Uh, Made me stop sticking needles in my arm. Um, unfortunately, it's made me stop having sex for two years. <laughs> but, um, it didn't stop me from writing, which was a good thing. Um, uh, and maybe it's just getting older. You know, I'm, I'll be 59 in a few weeks, and uh, maybe you know, if you're lucky and you get to a certain age, instead of uh, worrying about the things you're worried about, you just sort of. Uh, you settle in. You settle into the worry. I guess. I think. I guess you still worry about some of the same things. It's just not as worrying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But anyway, if that makes any sense. It, it's it's not as consuming. It's not as consuming. Things. I mean, things just don't matter to me like they used to, <laughs> because the things that do matter to me are more important to me now. And it's, um, you know. I, um, I've learned not to. Can I say a four-letter word on here? No. We, okay. we try and I keep stand, it FCC I st- compliant. Okay. <laughs> I, st- I, I, I try not to step in other people's crap. Can I say crap? I okay. think you okay. can. Okay. All right. That's an acceptable okay. four-letter word. I usually say another word, but I try not to step in that and reflect it back at them. So if someone else is worrying about a lot of stuff or, or crazy, 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 and it's directed toward me. I've just learned not to step in it. I used to always step in it. Just step in it and reflect it back. You know, so so it, was, it was their st- stuff, I'll use that word, mm-hmm. their stuff that I was absorbing and reflecting back at them. And I just learned, I've learned to step aside from all that. And uh, uh, I don't know. I, life is simpler. Um, I think that's what we're all seeking. I think we're all seeking to heal, finally. That's what we're all seeking. I think that's... 
that's life's journey for all of us is how do you heal? Mm-hmm. I think we're all just trying to heal in our own way. We're trying to, all of us are trying to find ways to heal. So in your first book, Mississippi Sissy, which was a New York Times bestseller, you, you talked about what you just talked about. You lost both, both your parents okay. before you were 10. Uh, grew up outside of uh, Jackson, Mississippi, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and eventually you moved to L.A. I, no, uh, no. New York City. In New York City, okay. And uh, uh, I was just going back and just looking at our reviews. Uh, and you, you had this one story, and I'm going to lead to something a little later on, about meeting Eudora Welty. Mm-hmm. Was what? What was that like? You had a story about that. Uh, uh, I think uh, someone you were with was. Uh, well, you could tell it, telling something to Eudora Welty. And I just wanted to know if meet, this meeting Eudora Welty was kind well, of what got tell, you on the track to writing. Well, well it, I tell people now. Uh, you know, when I, I I drop a lot of names in this book, I can't even say the name of the first chapter because you told me I can't speak like that um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's something it starts with star and ends with something else it starts with an F and um, star <laughs> yeah and uh, I've told people that you know once you've hung out with Eudora Welty interviewing Madonna is a piece of cake I mean that's just not impressive right you know, if, to a certain person to a certain sort of person um I mean, when when you're 16, you're sitting around a kitchen table and pouring her maker's mark and listening to her her tongue loosen as the bourbon, you know, seeps in and then uh, tell her stories. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, like no one... Who else can impress you after that? I mean, everyone after her was, like, in her shadow to me. Mm. Uh, um, yeah, in, the, in that book, there's... Her introduction in the book is, if this is what you're talking about, I don't know. Um, I'm at a party, a cast party. She was involved in the the mid-70s in Jackson, Mississippi, sort of a halcyon time of this very literary, sophisticated, liberal, uh, demimonde set of people who were sort of all surrounded this theater called New Stage Theater. And she was like the den mother. Uh, and she was best friends with the man that I found murdered, who I was renting the house from. Uh, read Mississippi Sissy to find that story. Mm. Uh, but it's two ninety nine on Kindle. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, she was getting drunk at this party, uh, doing her B. Lily imitation. She loved to do B. Lily imitation. She like lower dress on her cubist shoulders and you know, like sing. No coward songs, and um, she was in no state to drive herself home over to Pinehurst, where she lived. And Frank, the man that I was running the room from, who was one of her best friends, uh, said, "Why don't you drive Miss Welty home?" And I was flirting with some guy that I was just out of the closet. I was about sixteen or seventeen. I could tell he was interested in me, like some older guy who was probably thirty. And, um, <laughs> uh, and I didn't want to leave. I wanted to flirt, and he said drive her home you will thank me one day you will write about it which I did and I but I'd been to the gym that day and when I was getting and we were parked next to a Jewish cemetery because Frank lived across the street in this old dilapidated looking house on the outside inside it was gorgeous but on the outside he hadn't painted it it just looked like it was a haunted house we called it Bleak House because Bleak House is right across the street from this Jewish cemetery the only one in Jackson and I was parked sort of on the ledge of it and she had made herself you know around to the passenger side and was getting in and all my gym clothes were on the front seat and by the time I got there and opened the door she had my jock strap in her (laughs) (laughs) and was putting it on my back seat and I just went, oh, Miss Welty, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, my God. And and she said, well, we'll just pretend it's a little Jewish ghost. And she's like, and she put it back on the back seat. So when people ask me now to describe the way I write, because I can be a little vulgar sometimes, is this new book mm-hmm. a test? I mean, there's sex scenes in it that may be upsetting to some people. Um, but I'm also very lyrical, I think, uh, and Southern, um, very Southern. Uh, when people ask me to describe the way I write, I, I always say, uh, it's your Dora Welty holding a jockstrap. <laughs> <laughs> that's me. Oh, that's great. 
<laughs> We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Kevin Sessoms, the author of I Left It on the Mountain, who is chock full of fascinating anecdotes. So um, you said you you interviewed all these other celebrities. You kind of hobnobbed with them. uh, But uh, did you ever feel like you were kind of one of the gang? Or does being a writer keep you at arm's length? No. I have a very working class, blue collar attitude about what I do. Uh, My day job, that celebrity journalism, as they call it, which I think is an oxymoron. I do not think of myself as a journalist. I'm a writer who's unintimidated by fame. I know narrative. I can talk to people. Um, I'm a truck driver. That's what I am. That's my day job. I'm a truck driver who hauls glamorous cargo. I haul it to deadline. I dump it out. I put some more glamorous cargo in it. I get behind the wheel. I drive that damn truck. Uh, That's what I do. Um, And I look... I'm going to mix a lot of metaphors here, folks, because yeah, I know you have a very literate <laughs> audience, uh, and they're going to go, "Oh no, he just said he was a truck driver. He's not Cinderella." But I'm also, <laughs> I'm also Cinderella. I mean, I go, I have a Cinderella, not complex. Um, I know that when I go and I'm in that world, it's not my world, but I welcome there. You know, and that world needs peripheral people right. to be that world. And I learned a long time ago, I'm just outside the frame of fame. Mm-hmm. I'm peripheral. And yet, just as God needs the devil to be God, <laughs> these people need the peripheral people for them to be famous mm-hmm. and uh, celebrated. And so, although I have a very much a Cinderella existence a lot of times... Most of my life is spent sweeping the hearth, and that's what I do. I mean, I lead a very simple life. Um, and I do say in this book um, that I think I am, I'm so at home in that job, that day job, that truck driving job, that Cinderella-like job. Um, because as a child, when both my parents died, um, I escaped into the comfort of celebrity. I would just sit in front of the television all day long and find comfort, not thinking about my own pain or my own life as a, as a little sissy kid or my otherness and my grief, um, trying to figure out what that was. I was feeling at seven and eight, eight years old. Mm-hmm. And I would carry on these sort of private conversations with these famous people on the TV or I'd go to the double feature on a Saturday afternoon at the little town theater and... Um, think I was not watching famous people but sort of my compatriots and I felt more connected to them than I did to the people around me in a strange way and so when I now talk to famous people and I get into the pocket of that conversation it's like a little nest I feel like I'm that little boy Mm -hmm. and I can be my truest truest self when I'm talking to a famous person which is alone I can be alone. I know that's sort of an incongruous way of talking about it, but I find a lot of comfort in solitude, and one of the most solitary experiences you can have is talking to a famous person. Because they're also very solitary. They're within themselves. I don't know. I I just feel like that lonely little boy, and I feel very much at home in the presence of fame. I guess I longed for it as a child. I I I, I had a longing for it, I think. Uh, not that attain it, but to keep repeating being in its presence because I found comfort there. So, uh, as you're reporting or, or interviewing, you're you're in this child. You know, you're you're uh, Kevin, the child, just in the realm in the midst of this celebrity. I imagine at some point, Kevin, the adult, comes out when he's writing. 
what when when what do you make the jump from from that to writing and how do you approach your your subjects afterwards either before or afterwards um as a writer as a journalist but you said you're, you're I'm not, not you're, you're a writer i'm not a journalist um i'm a writer um i'm not judgmental mm-hmm. if i had a bumper sticker it'd be not, uh never judgmental always discerning uh, that'd be sort of the way i live my life uh um, I'm impertinent. I think that always helps when you talk to a, a famous person to be impertinent. Mm-hmm. Uh, not insulting, impertinent. Uh, it helps to say the dirty words I can't say on this broadcast. That always helps to be a little vulgar. They like that. Uh, uh, to let them know your secrets. Mm-hmm. They always like that. Then you don't have to use them in, in the story. Although I am criticized for putting myself in stories too too much. Which is sort of like, I guess, a first small step into writing memoirs. Mm -hmm. Because to go back to that child, or maybe it's just the writer gene that I always had that it's like, I'm not sure which came first. I needed the protection or I was blessed to already have the protection when the tragedies happened in my life as a young young boy. But uh, I innately knew, let's put it that way, um, to close the door and look at life as narrative that's the way I coped with all the narrative like occurrences in my life I had a very southern gothic existence Um, not just the personal violence that's visited upon a child when the consecutive deaths occur of his parents not just that but because it happened in 1963 and 1964 in Mississippi the setting of that narrative was Freedom Summer, was the Civil Rights Movement, was all that amazingly rich, passionate narrative going on around me so that not only did I cope by stepping outside of my own personal story to watch it and see it. I mean, that's my earliest memory is just stepping out of it to cope with it. But then I would, the double stepping out of turning outward to look at the civil rights movement and that violence and that passion and it it sort of alleviated the violence I felt that had the emotional violence that I felt had violated me uh, and because I felt other all, all my life and sissy and you, when you're that young you don't know it's gay you just know it's other I identified with the otherness of the African Americans and the civil rights workers from the North who were coming in, who were hated by my grandparents, who were then raising me. Um, and I was confused by it. And so I had to make that narrative because these people who were raising me, who would use the N word, if they used it once, they used it 10 or 12 times a day. They hated civil rights workers. They were those kind of Mississippians in the 1960s. Mm. And if you looked at them objectively, from our point of view at this table now, they were the bad people. And even I knew that at seven or eight. It was like, these are the people on the national TV, the stuff I was watching as I nested in front of the television. Mm -hmm. These were the people that were bad. And yet, these were the people who had saved my life, who were loving me unconditionally, who took my brother and sister and me in and raised us and sacrificed us. I mean, they were already in, deep into their 60s, and they had these three small, grief-stricken children to raise and try to help heal that, that, that word again. So that I had to find the goodness in them, because they were filled with goodness. They were just bigoted. And I had to understand how bigoted people can be good people. It's how complicated the world is. I saw that with not a child's eyes but with a writer's eyes I saw it early on um, so even before I ever wrote a word I was a writer mm. so when you set out to write Mississippi Sissy um, and now I left it on the mountain mm-hmm. um, was it in part a response to the people who said you put too much of yourself in your writing to say alright well I'll, I'll do it for real uh, well I'd lost my job at Vanity Fair you know I wasn't working there anymore. I think if I had if I think if I were still working at Vanity Fair I'd never written these books it's weird I don't think I would have I never thought about that mm. um, I knew I always wanted to write a book I didn't know if I was good enough to write one it's a daunting task the first book I think everyone's got a book in them 
if they can write it or not that's you know that's that's the hard part but everybody's got one book in them uh, and I had that one book uh, and, but it was almost not it was novelistic because it was written in a certain way it was uh, so far in the past I'd lived with that story my whole life all the aspects of that story the molestation the deaths uh, Maddie May um, uh, the death of Frank Haynes that I alluded to earlier it was also novel all that was just novel like a novel and that little boy was almost a character to me myself I mean as I said I had an outsider view of that not not only as the child looking at the story I it was a double thing where I was an outsider looking at the child looking at at the story um this new book Miss uh I Left on the Mountain it was a much more daunting proposition for me because it's who I am now and I feel like I'm putting myself out in the world in a way that uh, is scary to me. <laughs> it's scary to me, um, you know. And I know, you know, it's. Uh, I try to do a lot of things in it. Um, I don't know if I hope it's read in the spirit in which it's written. I'm a lot, a lot of books aren't, and that's just what we have to put up with as writers. <laughs> um, you know, it's laced with name dropping, but because that is a part of my life, I thought about: Do I write about that? Do I put that? Do I insert that stuff into what's basically a story of, you know, drug addiction, recovery, spiritual journey? Would that taint it in some way? And I finally made the decision: It would taint it if I didn't put it in because it wouldn't be honest. Because that's a large part of my life. It's just if you're upset that I've dropped some names in this book, uh, then I can't, you know, that's your feeling. I can't control the way you you feel about it. It's in, just as what I did at Vanity Fair in the old days, when I did all those all those cover stories, and if you ever wanted to criticize Vanity Fair or Tina Brown or Graydon Carter, you would criticize those stories. You, it was an easy criticism. You would use the celebrity stuff as the cudgel to attack them. Um, I got that. So, you know, if you want to criticize this book, it's an easy cudgel. Go for it. Pick it up. Hit me on top of my bald head. I don't give a... I almost said a dirty word. I don't give a crap. Um, so so I just thought, no, I'm going to own it. I mean, I cut a lot of it out. I mean, first I wrote a lot more of it. I thought, that's that's too much. Ooh, it's vulgar. <laughs> I, the, some people may think the sex scenes in here are vulgar because they're a little bit de- detailed. Um, I don't... F- I don't find that vulgar. I, you know, some of I had went too far at one point, name dropping. That was the vulgar part to me. So I did, I did pull back. So if you can imagine, this is the pullback. <laughs> you can imagine what it was like. Um, well, some people like that stuff. So, yeah. so, so there's not going to be a director's cut with all of that left in. No, I don't think so. Maybe with some of the sex scenes that I, I cut. <laughs> you can release them as, as uh, digital novellas. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Fifty Shades of Gay. <laughs> well, Kevin, thank you so much for coming in oh, to, thank you for having me to talk I, with us about I, your book. Right. We've been talking with Kevin Sussums, and you can find his book, I Left It on the Mountain, in stores right now. This has been a real pleasure for us. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Senior Spirituality and Religion Editor Lynn Garrett tells us about some of the big books in spring in the religion and spirituality field. We'll be right back. This is Greer McAllister, author of The Magician's Lie, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Senior Spirituality and Religion Editor Lynn Garrett is here to tell us all about PW's upcoming Religion and Spirituality Supplement. Hello, Lynn. Hello there. Hi. So it used to be the Religion uh, Supplement. You used to be our Senior Religion uh, Editor. What's happened with the combination of spirituality and religion? How did that come about? And um, we'll start with that. Well, research is uh, increasingly showing that more and more Americans are not affiliated with a traditional religion, and instead they identify themselves as spiritual but not religious. Um, Also, the category that we have referred to as religion 
comprises a, a broader range of books than ever before. And many publishers, booksellers, authors are finding that the label religion is limiting or imprecise. So in response to these cultural and industry changes and to better express what the category is about, PW is relabeling the category to spirituality and religion. And you'll, uh, readers will see this in our coverage from now on. So does this give you a lot more freedom and flexibility to decide what you're going to cover? Well, actually, we've had that anyway. It doesn't really change the range of books that we're going to be covering. I just think it's a, a much more accurate label for what we do cover. Gotcha. So tell us a little bit about what falls under that label and especially what's going to be covered in our upcoming spring supplement. Well, gosh, it's a wide range of books. Uh, we, we do try to cover all faiths. Um, it, it is true that the biggest segment of religion and, or spirituality and religion publishing here is are Christian books, but we also cover other faiths, uh, Judaism, um, Hinduism, Buddhism. We try to range the full spectrum of faiths, and we also try to look at all of the subcategories and genres within those faiths. Uh, what we have coming out on Monday in our spirituality and religion supplement, print supplement in the magazine, is what we call, we're covering what we call the evergreen categories. And what that means is books that are uh, really the bread and butter of publishers in this category, and that would include things like prayer, daily devotional readings, um, uh, spiritual practices now, increasingly, like mindfulness meditation, books on religious holidays, uh, that sort of thing. So, and we're also looking at the kinds of books that readers are increasingly going to for what they might have once gone to the local rabbi or the local priest or the local um, minister, you know, since they may not be affiliated with a religion. So they might go to the, uh, the bookstore shelves or the library shelves and, and look for um, that type of information, books on aging, illness, death and dying, um, books on marriage and parenting are very big, especially among the Christian publishers. So these are books that, uh, when you talk about spirituality, that are non-denominational, do not, uh, are not based on a certain religion, but those looking for, as you said, aging, but, but with a spiritual uh, connection to it. Well, some of them are affiliated with a specific religion, but others aren't. Mm -hmm. So, as I say, there's a very wide range within the, uh, the category that we call spirituality and religion. We also have an article in the supplement on um, books on near-death experiences and um, trips to heaven and back, which <laughs> some skeptics call heaven tourism. And those books have been very, very big over the past several years. You'll see them on the bestseller lists and, um, you know, it, it, they're, uh, they're controversial. I mean, some people who are religious, um, think that theologically they're suspect, but some of them sell millions and millions of copies. And there was a recent controversy about that, wasn't there? Yeah, there was a, a recent controversy. Uh, a 16-year-old uh, boy named Alex Malarkey recanted the experiences that uh, he detailed with his father Kevin in a 2010 book called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, a remarkable account of miracles, angels, and life beyond this world, and he now says that, you know, his account was not true. Basically, he did it to get attention. Uh, the book was published by Tyndale House, and they uh, pulled it out of print in January uh, on the heels of this controversy. Wow. So um, is that the sort of thing that drives sales, or does it, does it cause problems? Does it uh, limit the number of people who might be interested in the topic? Well, I... I don't know. I think it will draw attention to the topic, certainly. And, you know, there's already a couple of books that have been on the bestseller list forever on this topic. One is 90 Minutes in Heaven. Uh, the other one is Heaven is for Real. They're both still on the bestseller list many, many weeks, like 200 weeks in the case of one of them. So I don't know. I don't know what effect um, that it would have on sales, but it may very well draw attention to these other books. So tell us a little bit about um, some of the, the books, the big spring books that are going to be covered in the supplement. Do you have particular titles that you can preview for us? Well, we, we, we start out by citing the fact that there are books on these topics that have, 
you know, they, they sell and sell and sell. They, they are, were published many, many years ago, but they're really big backlist sellers for these publishers, and as I say, bread and butter. Um, but there are some that are coming out uh, that are writings by the Dalai Lama. Oh, here's one, The Wisdom of Pope Francis. And, of course, there have been many, many books, uh, not by Pope Francis, but uh, about him Mm -hmm. and collections of his previous writings that have come out ever since his election as Pope. So that's one area. There are devotional calendars. There are devotional collections. There's one called John Wesley's Words and Wisdom Devotional Calendar, which it is a calendar, but it's a little book. Um, And that's actually coming out next year. Uh, There is a book. Uh, Buddhist meditation uh, called Sit Like a Buddha, a pocket guide to meditation. Uh, It was released in December. It sold about 8,000 copies so far, which isn't bad for a book like that. Um, There is another one called Mindfulness on the Go, simple meditation practices you can do anywhere. These books do tend to be short. Uh, They tend to be bite-sized pieces of inspiration, and they also tend to be packaged beautifully because people enjoy them as a as a beautiful object as a print book that they can carry around with themselves so do you do you get things like uh advent calendars i know that some some of these practices are more popular in particular places than others so all of my english friends for example talk about advent calendars but i've i'm not sure i've ever seen one in the u.s well, you do see them. They're not very common, though, but, but you do see books on, on the holidays. So you will see Advent books, Easter books, uh, Christmas, Lent, um, you know, those sorts of things that do cluster around religious holidays. So are religion and spirituality publishers having a little trouble adapting to this this new world of the, the people who are spiritual but not religious, or are they pretty much surfing the wave? Are they uh, having trouble publishing to them? Um, I don't think so. I think, um, you know, the publishers in this category, as in any other, are sensitive to trends, and they are always trying to reach the broadest possible audience. So even these publishers that are affiliated with a traditional religion, they like that their books are going to be under a category that's called spirituality and religion, so that, you know, people who might not look at the books would look at them because they don't just say religion, which a lot of people associate that as being kind of an archaic label. All right. Well, thank you very much for giving us a preview of that supplement. It'll be in Monday's issue. Uh, And it's always great to have you on the show, Lynn. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks, Lynn. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hello, this is Gay Talese. I'm the author of The Bridge, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Carrie Patel, author of The Buried Life. We will also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 